As this news outlet continues to chronicle the rapid expansion of the epidemic of child sex abuse within the American competitive cheer industry, we've seen case after case in state after state with new defendants and new survivors, but a similar story. Each new lawsuit, though, that we've covered in this story has uncovered additional details, new angles, and had original content to it that points us in different directions as we try to make sense of this still unfolding story. And the lawsuit that we covered out of Ohio was no different, providing for the first time what appeared to be a fairly direct link between Varsity, the multi-billion dollar corporation at the heart of the American competitive cheer industry, and some of these allegations of sex abuse. As we dug into the Ohio story, we wanted to sit down with one of the attorneys who's been brought into this case to work with the lawyers at the Strom Law Firm and the various counsels in multiple states where these lawsuits have been filed. It was my pleasure this week to sit down with Amy Gaffney, one of the state of South Carolina's top employment lawyers, who has been on the Ohio case and who's assisting the Strom lawyers on several of the other competitive cheer lawsuits. Here's my conversation with Amy. All right, so as part of our ongoing efforts, Amy, to get to the bottom of this epidemic of sex abuse in the American competitive cheer uh, industry, we're here in Charleston, South Carolina. Your law office is Gaffney Lewis. You're new to this case, but you are an attorney with some seasoned experience on a lot of these big cases. You've done some serious employment work. You're familiar with a lot of those laws. But first, before we get into this case, before we start talking about the cheer lawsuit, I want to know a little bit about you, about your history. Where are you from? How'd you end up here? Sure. I am from West Virginia, Princeton, West Virginia to be exact, a small town in the very southern tip of um, the mountain state. And uh, I got here by way of Charlotte, where I stopped for four years at Queens College, now um, Queens University, and had a wonderful experience there um, in what was primarily an all-girls school. And after leaving uh, Charlotte, I knew I didn't want to return to West Virginia, so my path continued to head south and east to South Carolina. And did you always want to be a lawyer? Was this a- always. Really? So the first time I remember saying what I wanted to do when I grew up, I always said I wanted to be a lawyer. So I, it, it just felt natural that that's what the trajectory would be, is that I would go to college and then on to law school. What day. drew you? to it? It's so hard to say because I don't have a family um, tradition of, of law. My family, my, my father and his family were all pharmacists. I grew up working in the family pharmacy. I was no good at biology and chemistry, so I knew that wasn't in the cards. But I think that I thought there was, or I think that I thought that it was going to be um, a little bit of um, acting. Mm-hmm. It's a little drama. Uh, I like the problem-solving aspect of it, and I, I just thought it was a very noble kind of profession where you really were um, helping people and um, seeing to it that people's rights were protected, and um, and so that's a lot of reason why this case has been appealing as well. Well, and tell us, uh, obviously there's a, a number of these federal cheer cases. We've been covering them extensively on Fitz News, on the Cheer Incorporated podcast, but how did you get on this case? 
Um, we have had a wonderful collaborative relationship. And by we, I mean my law partner, Regina Lewis, and I at our firm, Gaffney Lewis, have had a great collaborative uh, relationship over the years with the lawyers at Strom um, in Columbia. We have the highest regard for Pete Strom and the team that he has assembled there. And so over the years, we have done some, um, some cases, handled some cases with them. Um, anything that had an employment bent to it, the Strom lawyers have pulled us in and, and we've worked together very nicely. So I think seeing that, um, that there is an employment element to this case from the standpoint of what agents of these companies were doing, but also we've handled um, large-scale cases, we've handled mass tort cases, um, and I think, Will, what, what really drew um, their attention to us and ours to them was that Regina and I have both worked on the defense side. So our firm was really born as a defense firm, and I think um, it was perceived to be helpful that maybe we would would bring that defense bent to this case, being able to sort of anticipate what the defense arguments were, and in that way complement the strong lawyers who are all, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, best-notch plaintiff's lawyers. Absolutely. So you're assisting on all the cases? Um, so far, we have assisted with the, the latter of the cases, so the South Carolina and the Ohio cases. Okay. The, um, the Florida, Georgia, Tennessee cases predated us. Okay. Let me ask you this. You, since you've been on this case, has anything surprised you? Have you learned anything you didn't know before? What sort of stood out to you just on a macro level? Learning the entire cheer world, which is completely unknown to me. I have a daughter, but she's never been involved in competitive cheer. Uh, Of course, I was never involved in competitive cheer. So understanding more about that industry, um, how it works, how families get involved, um, the pay sort of... uh, uh, the, the amount of money that people are pumping into that, I had no idea that that whole world operated. And so just learning that business has been fascinating to me. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Absolutely. Super lucrative. Um, and, and, you know, as a parent, I know you're a parent as well, we want to get our children into activities that are uh, physically engaging, that are mentally engaging, perhaps that have a competitive element to that. So I can see where families would have found this to be an attractive option for their boys and girls. Teaching teamwork. And- teamwork is critical to what's happening there. Physical excellence, um, you know, conditioning, all this. It really seems to hit on a lot of fronts. So I can see again why parents would have found that to be a, a good placement for their children. I, again, I'm stunned at the amount of money that that these things cost, or the you know being involved in competitive cheer cost. The sort of top to bottom that if you don't just casually participate in cheer, you have to buy the clothes, you have to get the private lessons, you know, all the sort of universe that operated out there. So that's been a big surprise to me. And of course, the nefarious side of it has been a very disappointing surprise that that has been allowed to um, permeate that industry. More prevalent than you thought? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let me ask you, well, let's talk a little bit about that now. Looking at the at the Ohio case, I wanted to ask you, walk us through sort of the, the key points of this case, the, the defendants, obviously, Brandon Hale, Taji Davis, uh, but tell us a little bit about some of the key allegations in this case, not only against them, but against some of the other entities named in the complaint. Well, I think that the, um, starting with the two individuals, that's a um, a unique set of facts uh, where you have two choreographers 
um, who are sort of operating in an ancillary role uh, to the cheer industry where these two um, gentlemen um, were able to um, form a relationship of trust with a, a young man in Ohio and to, um, through that relationship of trust, to um, exploit that, uh, draw him to a hotel, um, expose him to, um, to illicit substances, and then sexually abuse him. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the, um, the unique allegation in the Ohio case is the abuse of that young male who I think was 17 at the time of the sexual abuse. Um, the allegations as to the remaining defendants, the Varsity Network, the Rockstar Network, that um, those are fairly consistent with what's been alleged in the other states. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that because those defendants, they're not going quietly on this case, are they? They're pushing back pretty hard. No, we've had a raft um, of motions to dismiss file um, contemporaneous with the answers that those defendants have filed. It's not unusual to see motions to dismiss filed from a procedural um, standpoint. So we weren't surprised Mm -hmm. that the motions to dismiss came along with the answers. Uh, I think that a lot of the the focus of the motions to dismiss are are on the RICO claims, where they're saying that the plaintiff's complaints don't um, allege the requisite elements or the requisite collusion Mm -hmm. uh, that you need for a RICO case. But again, no surprise and nothing that um, we weren't anticipating and that we won't fully evaluate and that we'll be allowed to um, respond to. And I don't want to put you on the spot too hard on this question, and I certainly don't want to come across as defending some of the tactics of of Varsity and some of these other defendants, but on some level, do they have a point? On some level, are we getting to a point in our culture where everyone is a little bit responsible for everything? Well, you know, do the defendants have a point? And in uh, what's happening culturally to me are, are two very different things. We feel very strongly about the allegations that we've made. Uh, we feel that there are sufficient facts to support the claims that we have made. So I, I would not acquiesce that, um, you know, on some level they have a point. Uh, again, that's something that we will thoroughly brief and argue before the court at the appropriate time. Culturally, uh, mm-hmm. is that the direction that we're heading in? Mm, I, I don't know. I don't know that I have the expertise to speak on <laughs> cultural trends, but I can see where your question has some basis. Well, let me ask you this, though. There was an interesting component to this case that is, you, you talked about this case is unique, the Ohio case, and you're right, not only in the specificity of these allegations, but also one of the responses from Varsity, an initial response from one of their vice presidents who appeared to take it seriously, appeared to be doing the right things, and then the lawyers get involved and everything gets kind of shut down. It seems like there are some good people in this industry trying to do the right thing, and yet that profit motive, that uh, that desire to avoid liability, your thoughts on that? That, we see that um, in any number of other settings, you know, where, uh, again, bringing our defense background in, that was a common refrain that we would hear, profits over people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, to, to think that this is unique to the cheer industry, no. Uh, Are there good people in their world? Absolutely. Um, But as with so many things, uh, it's the bad eggs who begin to color the the field for for the good. And so here it's it's the bad that we're focused on. And Mm -hmm. were there steps taken to try and control the damage or address some of the losses? Uh, Yes. Um, Was it um, 
sustained and effective? Hmm. I don't. I don't know about that. But that was the. I think her name was Amy Clark, one of the VPs at Varsity. Certainly appeared to be taking these allegations seriously. Appeared to be trying to do the right thing and documenting them. And sure. But then that profit motive. Well, who knows what the motive was? I don't know that we'll ever have um, that insight. But as with every case, the defendants are entitled to certain defenses, uh, you know, that that are um, available to them. And so who knows what happened behind closed doors, but, um, you know, maybe decisions were made that um, that the defendants should try to avail themselves of some of the defenses rather than take the Clark route, mm-hmm. as I'll call it. We talk about the notion of accountability within an industry and some of the regulators in this industry that uh, over the course of years have failed to hold people accountable. As we sit here and talk today, the two named defendants in this suit, um, Hale and uh, Davis, they're not on the ineligible list maintained by USASF. How do you, how do you explain that? It's inexplicable. Um, you know, in the employment arena, we frequently will say, you know, you're not on notice that you've got a bad egg until they do something bad. And from that point, you as the employer or you as the controlling authority need to be taking steps to curtail their ability to do bad. You know, that's your role. Um, So it is, I I don't understand how those gentlemen could not still be um, limited. Um, What more notice would you need? than what's been, uh, what's been alleged. So uh, again, to be able to explain how that's happening, I, I don't know, but it, it would sure seem that there's sufficient information out there that should alert someone in a controlling position that, um, that some, some safeguards need to be put in place, like being placed on a do not hire list. Mm-hmm. In the absence of that, those folks are free to go to another state, go to another venue, whatever, um, without any sort of limitation. It's almost like the we covered in one of our previous episodes about Kenny Feely, uh, who's named in one of the South Carolina lawsuits and how he was able to avoid some of the scrutiny that coaches or trainers uh, were, were subjected to because he's a kind of a freelancer. These, right. these are also freelancers in the Ohio case. And is that another loophole that this industry needs to? I would imagine that that's, you know, that does um, keep them out of the direct scope uh, of, of the employer-employee uh, relationship. They're, they are like a freelancer, independent agent, um, um, something of that nature. So, right, they, they elude the scrutiny that an employer would have over his employee. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this question. We've seen some of the publicity related to the pushback against the Strom attorneys, uh, against Bakari Sellers and Ali Benevento and Jess Fickling. When you got into this case, seeing that sort of very aggressive response, that didn't scare you? That didn't make you think twice about No. Well, you know, I, I go back to what I said drew me into the law in the first place, and that was a, a feeling that we are in a noble profession in a unique position to help people. And 
we have an obligation to investigate when a claim comes to us, when people come and present their story, we have to look and dig and um, do our due diligence. But I feel confidently that if the Strom lawyers that we're working with put those allegations in a lawsuit, there was a good faith belief that would support the allegations that were made. Um, You know, I think it would be difficult in my profession if I had in the back of my mind with every complaint I filed that I might be sued for defamation. That's going to have a chilling effect. Um, But we still have an obligation to the people who have sought our counsel and who have sought to avail themselves of the voice that we can lend to them. Um, And so we we move forward. A lot of efforts to silence those voices, huh? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Let me ask you this. from your perspective, where do you think this story's headed? Do you see more cases? I mean, we're all, what are we at? Six states, 11 lawsuits, more than 20 survivors, almost 40 named defendants. Is this thing going to grow beyond that? My hope is that anyone in the country who has had a similar experience with these affected plaintiffs will see that they are not alone, that their stories um are meritorious, that they have strong and um, aggressive and able counsel who will get behind them, um, who will speak for them and provide that voice that they've not had. So my hope is that if there are others out there, that the cases will um, multiply because we... um, we want to give them that forum where their the injustice dealt to them can be um, handled appropriately. One of the ways to do that, obviously, is the more that people know about these cases. But let me ask you this: Na- nationally, when it comes to the national mainstream media, there's been hardly any coverage of the story. That too, it's so hard to to hypothesize why there has been so little because in the past, um, what. 10 years, five years, certainly since the Me Too movement, there's been a a, a lot of publicity around victims of sexual abuse. Um, So it it is challenging to think that we um, are not getting much media exposure. Um, You know, I noticed that the Washington Post covered the motions to dismiss that were filed yesterday. Uh, It made me wonder if the Washington Post had covered the initial filing of the complaint. Like, why would the motions to dismiss be any more newsworthy or interesting um, than the initial filing? But my hope is that as more cases come along, that there will be um, increased interest by the media so that the word can get out and so that people who have been living with this injustice will see that they are not alone, that they have skilled and able counsel, and that they'll feel emboldened and empowered to, um, to use the justice system in the manner it was intended. Amy Gaffney, thank you. Thank Appreciate you. you being willing to sit down with us and share your insights on this case. Hope you'll come back and sit down with us again as this thing continues to move down the road. Anytime. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.